Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kazingram Dialogue podcast. We've got some awesome news. We broke into the podcast charts. We were ranked 58 in Great Britain, 52 in France, 55 in Japan, 133 in Canada for philosophy podcasts on Apple Podcasts, and 47 for society and culture in Estonia on Spotify. This is all thanks to you guys, our awesome listeners, and our amazing guests. So if you enjoy this podcast, please share and subscribe. So, our guest today is Josh Hochschild. Josh is a professor of philosophy at Mount St. Mary's University. He has published and lectured on a variety of topics in the history of philosophy, ethics, and education. In this episode, we discuss his book, A Mind at Peace, Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in an Age of Distraction. And we also discuss the effects of technology on our consciousness how to live a moral life in an age of distraction, the role meditative practices and rituals play in shaping both our minds and our morals, as well as different religious conceptions of God, humanity, law, and the moral life. So please welcome Josh Hochschild to the Kuzingram Dialogue Podcast. Josh, it's great to meet you. Hi, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me here. This is great. Well, you know, I was as we were just saying, your last name is pronounced Hochschild, right? Correct. And until about until I started listening to your uh, some of your interviews, I always thought it was pronounced Hochschild, Hochschild, Hochschild. And so when I was talking to you know, when I was listening to it, and they'd be like Joshua Hochschild, I said, like, "Am I listening to the right?" interview yeah you got you got the right one there are actually different different branches of the family in the u.s have adopted different softenings of the german pronunciation uh, so i live near baltimore and there's a there's a branch uh that some and some people still know the name of the um the store called hoschelds in baltimore so um same spelling uh same family back a few generations but they they chose to pronounce it hoschold but my my uh, grandfather and his family pronounced it Hope Shield. Have you ever done the DNA uh, DNA test? No, I I haven't. I haven't. Are you not Have interested you in it at all? Uh, I'm probably as curious as anybody, but I also uh, I don't need to know. I don't know that it would help me with anything, and I'm a little suspicious of where all that data goes. Okay. <laughs> Does that? Do you think there's? Do you think it's a possibility? Um, uh, I mean. I'm sure it's a possibility, but do you do you think that the uh, the companies that are doing the DNA test that they're really not sharing the information? With I have no idea. I, I don't know. I I feel like they I feel like yeah. there's just too many too much good information not to be shared, and and get. Yeah, and it's only a matter of time before insurance companies decide that they um, want to use that information. Or um, I, I mean, I don't. I, I can't even imagine all the different. Um, possible future scenarios in which data that's being collected, even even right now, the information that's being collected about our faces through Zoom um, is is I'm sure being stored somewhere. Well, <laughs> yeah, we're we're feeding we're feeding a, a vast a vast information storage machine, and we don't know who's going to use it in the future. I mean, we're living through we're living through a very unique time. I mean, I get 
unique time in that we are in a very technocratic society. Um, yeah, that's right. And you and your co-author, Chris, Christopher, wrote the book, um, Mind at Peace. Yeah, yeah. And so in that book, it, it, you're, you're addressing the intellectual and moral um, failures of our, of our society. What, what kind of effects... What kind of effects do you think that these technologies and our consumerist, consumer, consumeristic mindset is, is having on our consciousness, our intellectual life, our moral life? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the book that I wrote um, with my friend Chris Bloom, um, and I, I want to give him credit. It was, his, it was his vision to write the book and my privilege to join, join him in writing it. Um, in one sense, it's very classical. We didn't want to invent the wheel, reinvent the wheel. Um, we, we both have studied um, classical philosophy. We're both converts to Catholicism. Um, so we're drawing on um, ancient philosophy. We're drawing on the, the Christian spiritual tradition to talk about some pretty basic things in, in the interior life about how to, how to, to um, make oneself capable of prayer, capable of friendship, um, and, and true, true relationship and true contemplation. Um, but we, we wrote the book because we think there are some very, very specific challenges to doing those things today, as, as you described, um, because of modern technology, specifically the kind of constant connectivity of, of portable digital devices. Um, many parents have noticed this as they watch their kids grow up. Many children actually notice it as they see their parents become um, more and more dependent on digital technology. Some of the most interesting research done on, on how mobile devices are, are changing families and relationships um, is, is through interviews with young people who feel like their parents don't give them as much attention uh, as, as they want or as they re even remember uh, receiving in the past. That's just one example. Um, the short answer to your question I, I, what, what, what this technology does is it places constant demands on our attention. Mm. And so um, we have to be even more disciplined today than ever about the choices we make about where to give and receive attention. Um, I think people could uh, once upon a time get through life without having to worry too much about that, that the things the things that the environment was more or less proportionate to the way that human attention was designed. Mm. So if things were important, they came to the forefront and if people were in front of you, you could give them their, you give them attention, look them in the eye and, and have a conversation with them. Um, but we're now kind of bombarded with so much, um, not just data and information, but so much stimulus to our senses and especially to our eyes. Uh, the screen is mesmerizing. Um, for Lent, I put my my uh, smartphone um, on on grayscale, and it makes a huge difference. I can't say that I'm I, I haven't measured if I'm using it less, um, but it's it's not as interesting to look at. Um, and actually, if I if I now look at a color screen, it almost looks scarcely bright to me. Um, but the, the 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 screen of a smartphone, for instance, is designed to to be so mesmerizing that it's more interesting than the real world around you. 
Mm. And uh, obviously, I'm not. I'm not saying we should throw the things out. I'm not a luddite. I just admitted I have a smartphone and I use it. And I, maybe you found me on Twitter. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm as I'm as um, compromised and um, uh, incorporated into the the modern um, digital media culture as anybody. But I'm trying to remain conscious of uh, and deliberate about my use of that technology, mm. which takes, which takes not just willpower, but it takes, you have to, you have to form habits. It's not just a, enough to sort of make a single act and say, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, you have to try to develop habits to, to, um, to bring the, the appetite for sensation more under control. It's so difficult to, <laughs> to put your phone down, especially, yeah. especially with yeah. like um, Twitter, you know, you could just scroll yeah for yeah. hours and yeah. you 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 wonder what it's doing to to the mind to just to just to the human mind where there's a sense of um uh what would be, a sense of reward that maybe you would have gotten if you were if you went hunting instead sure whereas you're like exactly. scrolling through exactly. your phone yeah well and it's it's designed to be maximally addictive so, I mean, you could imagine that they could have designed Twitter so that you scroll through 10 tweets and then you're asked, do you want to continue or is it time for you to do something else? But it, it's bottomless. They don't, they don't ever stop to ask you that. Right? They, or it, it could be designed so that you only got notifications twice a day. Right? So you, you, would, you could check you know, in the morning and you could check in the afternoon, but otherwise... You, you don't have notifications. Mm. Obviously, it would, it would have a different dynamic. It might not seem as immediate. It might, there are certain kinds of conversations that might not take place that way. But, but um, one of the interesting things I learned is that they, don't, they actually don't dole out notifications um, immediately either. Sometimes these um, social media applications, I don't do Instagram or Facebook, but I think they all um, have adopted this strategy where um, if, if you get uh, likes or retweets or um, whatever it is, um, it, it's not instantaneous that someone likes your post and then you see that they liked it. Sometimes Twitter chooses to hold back that information because they know that you're anticipating it. And your anticipation of it keeps your attention. And the, the reward that you get, as you, as you say, like the reward after, after a, a day of hunting and you finally catch your um, your, um, your prey, um, the, the, the little reward you get of, of the life, which shows up in red, of course, which is a very stimulating color, um, is, is something that, that you seek more because it's not predictable. Um, and it has to be doled out to you in a way that keeps you coming back. It's based on a, a classic study. I've heard it described. I haven't looked back at the original study, but, um, a, a, a study about appetite and reward in rats. And if you, if you put a rat in a, in a cage with a, a mechanism where they, they, if they press a button, a piece of food comes out, um, they'll press the button and they'll eat until they're full. And then they'll stop pressing the button. But if you randomize um, the output so that the rat doesn't get food every time it presses the button, but only sometimes, the rat will keep pressing the button and eat itself beyond the healthy amount. Wow. We'll just keep eating. It will become addicted to pressing the button. And th this is how slot machines are designed. 
um, so to keep to keep gamblers coming back. Um, so we, we've all been. It's not just that the technology happens to um, be vulnerable to addiction, but it's actually been fine tuned to be optimized for addiction. You would think that the um, some of these companies would uh, be more would approach it more ethically, but I guess. <laughs> But I guess you, that's you do want to make that's, profit. That's your job. It's your job to use it ethically. It's their job to try to get your eyeballs on as much as possible. So what, what would what, what would you know? Like some some of these ancient um, ancient philosophers, they talk about you know self control, self mastery. Yeah. But they were for sure that you know they didn't have Twitter or Instagram, right? You know, maybe at worst at worst they had um, a book of uh, a library full of books, right? Uh, how, I mean, what were, yeah, go right. ahead, go ahead. Finish. I was just going to say, how, how would, how would they, what would they tell us? What can they tell us? What can they give us in this age? Um, that's a great question. Uh, essentially what we're talking about is the extension of the virtue of temperance to the sense, to the sensible appetite. So we typically think of temperance as controlling our most basic animal desires, uh, the bodily desires, right? The food and the sex at the end of the day, that's, that's what um, the, the, the fundamental bodily drives of, of an animal. Um, and so when we, when we talk about pe people being temperate or not, we typically talk about whether they are overindulgent in, in basic bodily appetite. But the, that there are other higher appetites and we have an appetite to see, we have an appetite to know, we have an appetite to hear things so people can, can um, overindulge in listening to stimulating music, for instance, when maybe they would actually benefit from breaks from that and, and, and periods of silence. Um, and there, there was a language for this that obviously didn't have the particular temptations we have, but um, the, the virtue, the vice that Augustine talks about suffering from, uh, especially in the Confessions, um, in addition to the bodily vices that he also confesses, is the vice of curiositas. Um, and I like to leave it in the Latin because curiosity in English is kind of ambivalent. It, we, we often praise curiosity. We talk about how we want to, to cultivate curiosity in, in kids. And it, it's related, but the, the idea of curiositas is a disordered desire to know, a seeking after the wrong objects of knowledge or seeking after them in the wrong way, seeking after too much knowledge and not not putting the seeking after knowledge in in perspective with other things that should be sought so you know augustine was was curious to expose himself to the stimulation of of the theater to see um to see the gladiatorial combat or the or the the, the uh plays put on stage Old school and Netflix. realized that he was indulging his appetites he was he was stimulating his emotions which are good. I mean, there's nothing wrong. We're not talking about things being evil or good in themselves. We're, we're talking about them having an order and a proportion that needs to be tended to. So um, in a way, what we're talking about, especially in the middle part of our book, A Mind at Peace, is a, a kind of regulation or, or, or temperance of of sensation, the exterior senses, but also the interior senses. What what is it that you spend your time um, imagining, giving attention to, um, uh, 
putting putting in the forefront of your attention. Attention is a power, and we can direct it in, mm. in different ways. Is do we have? A, are we suffering from a lack of silence in our society? I, I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, I mean, just like when when we notice that we are too attached to um, our appetite for food, we realize that we need to step back and um, exercise periods of fasting. When we realize that our eyes are overstimulated with, um, with visual imagery, um, it can be helpful to step away from those things and, and, and seek a detachment from them. And, and likewise, if, if we're in an environment that is, is noisy, that is stimulating our, our ears, um, either, either in ways that we don't like, or maybe, maybe you're in the middle of a, a busy city and you're, you're a person who likes quiet and it's, it's overwhelming, or maybe, maybe you're choosing to listen to music all the time, but you realize, okay, I'm spending way too much time with these, mm. with these sounds in my head. Um, silence is very, very powerful. It's also um, terrifying, right? It is. It is. Boredom is terrifying, actually. I mean, one, one of the things that technology has, has made it harder for young people to experience is boredom. Boredom, is, boredom used to be a, a pretty common thing that you learn how to negotiate in life. Um, but uh, try to think of the last time that you stood in line somewhere and didn't check your phone. Right? It's because, we're, because it's boring to just stand there. Right? So, of course, you're going to do, you know, once upon a time, maybe you would pick up a magazine or you would chat to a stranger next to you and start a, a conversation with some small talk. But you also could just stand there and not necessarily do anything or reflect, mm -hmm. choose, choose what to give your attention to interiorly instead of looking for something um, to consume from the yeah. outside. Um, you asked a question earlier, you know, about, about, um, distractions in in previous times. Um, one of the things I, I came across in, in working on this book was a, a description of um, from this is from Evagrius, a very very early um, Christian uh, Christian writer of the 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 dangers of of a monk who's supposed to be reading one part of scripture. And he gets tempted um, because his mind wanders to read another part of scripture. Ooh. I, I thought, oh my gosh, I wish, <laughs> I wish that were my problem. I would love it if that were my problem. Or even worse than that, if the assignment for the monk is to, to be reading scripture or meditating, but he gets restless. And so um, he gets up and he, he goes and performs an, uh, an act of charity to his neighbor. When he sh he's shirking his duties, because he's supposed to be reading and meditating, but he's, he got bored, so he, he's, uh, his, his mind is wandering, and he's deciding to go be a friend to somebody. Um, that, that, that used to be the kind of problem that would be written about in a, in a book of spiritual discipline to remind mm. you to stay on task. That wow. sounds ridiculous to us now. I mean, um, if someone were to do that now, you'd be like, wow, what a saint. I know. I ask my students sometimes if, if I'll assign, say, a short essay, maybe five, five, eight pages or something like that. Um, and I'll ask them if any of them were able to read it all in one sitting without interruption. 
without checking their phone, without looking at their computer screen. And in the past few years, I haven't gotten any students who say that they can do that. Um, that that's, that's a big deal. That's a, that, that, so students today are experiencing even basic reading assignments differently mm -hmm. than they did 10 or 15 years ago. It, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't considered heroic 15 years ago for an 18-year-old to read a 10-page essay in one sitting. That was normal. And now that's painful. Yeah, wow. Is, is, our, is, also, is this, this age that we're living in, the age of distraction, that's what you guys called it, yeah. um, is that just a reflection of us and our, and, and our human nature to not contemplate you know, our existence, I guess? where you're, you, want, you want to be distracted from the fact that, uh, to give a very, very uh, a strong example, the fact that we're all going to die. So we don't want right. to think about that. Yeah. So let's distract ourselves. Um, I mean, that's a great question because I don't think human nature has changed, right? That's not the claim. Uh, the claim is that our environment has changed and put new pressures on uh, human nature that might have been uh, originally designed for other circumstances or that was was um, more optimally tuned for other circumstances. Um, you don't even have to be a, a theist to think mm. that that's reasonable. So one, one of the other interesting books that I looked at um, as I was, as I was reflecting on this is a, a book by um, a pair of neuroscientists. Um, I, I, I don't think either of them is religious. And as far as I can tell, they're, they're basically applying a kind of Darwinian um, uh, set of assumptions to what it is that human beings are. But, but especially if you apply a Darwinian set of assumptions, our, our brains evolve in very, very different conditions. Right? That's why the hunting metaphor you used before is, is so appropriate. Right? The, the way that our eyes are linked to our interior senses and our power of attention and and to the rest of our bodies, um, human beings are designed for a certain kind of action and and um, effort in the physical world, um, pursuing things, ignoring things, filtering certain sorts of things so we can concentrate on other things, um, and so you put that that structure fine-tuned by God or by evolution. Um, and you, you give it a smartphone in the pocket and you, you sit at the desk in front of a computer all day. Yeah. And you have to think that it, it, it might be slightly disoriented. Mm. It, it might bring out certain vulnerabilities or provide an opportunity for um, even more attention to um, uh, kind of psychological or emotional health that someone a uh, thousand years ago or a hundred thousand years ago didn't have to worry about because their environment provided them their psychological health. Mm. We, we have to do things like put your phone away, like not sleep with it by your bed, um, like have everybody keep it in the next room while you're sitting down to dinner. We, we have to be intentional about things to keep our environment humane or, or we will find ourselves um, a little bit overwhelmed, I think. What do you think would happen if let's let's just suppose that you know uh, 
a hundred years from now, we have, we've started implanting um, stuff into our brains and we have contact lenses that are um, very technologically advanced that you can see things. Yeah. Do you think human nature as such would change as a result of that? Do we, do you think our, you know, do you think our capacity for, I don't know, uh, intellectual, um, intellectual pursuits would drop significantly? Do you think we'll become more, um, less, uh, less, I, I guess more aroused by, uh, by our, our, by primal things than higher virtuous or more intellectual. Yeah. That's a good question. I, I, I guess I would distinguish human nature from human habit. Okay. And so I, I don't think human nature is going to change at all. Uh, even, even if I, well, if I were a Darwinian, I might say that human nature is going to change but that's over a time scale of more than a hundred years or a okay. thousand years. Yeah. Yeah. There'd have to be a long, 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 long period of time of, of uh, further uh, random mutation and natural selection for human nature to, um, to change. But certainly culture can change habits a lot faster than that. Hmm. And what, what, what we're describing in the book and what our conversation is about today is, is not that um, human beings have become such that, um, the, the things that used to be true of human nature aren't true anymore, but we have, we now live in an environment that makes certain virtues harder to practice, makes certain vices easier to, to develop. Mm. And so there are, there's a new set of challenges and people who don't try to meet those challenges then can find themselves living according to have their nature doesn't change, but they live according to habits that then might make them more difficult, make it more difficult for them to appreciate things that are natural for human beings. Mm. So I, I think it's natural for human beings to love good conversation and to reflect on um, uh, beautiful and true things. I don't think that's changed. But I do fear that um, unless we're very careful, that people will grow up in an environment where there are different kinds of pleasures that are overwhelming and, and become people become more attached to them so that they can no longer experience the pleasures of beautiful art or a good novel or a good conversation. Um, it's one of the reasons that college I think is actually designed to be a, a period of time where you're set apart. Mm. And it's harder and harder for college students to experience it that way. They still feel themselves in a sense in the middle of the world because they're bombarded by distractions but it's still the case that no teacher wants their classroom to look like a sports bar with a bunch of televisions around right um we don't want slot machines in the hallways in a college right why not well because we know that human nature is such that they'll be tempted mm. towards these things and they mm. so so we actually still when we're intentional about a space like um, a college classroom we we exclude things we filter so that we can give attention to the things that matter. I don't want televisions on every wall. Mm. I'd rather just have a nice seminar table so we can look each other in the eye and have some books in front of us. Um, we still luckily do that in college, um, but we don't do enough of that in the rest of our lives. Mm. Um, some people do it in their houses. They're, they're, they try to be intentional, say, about where they install the television so that it's accessible when you want it, but it doesn't overwhelm and sort of intrude on family life all the time, or I guess uh, uh, 
television was less common, but people, wh where they put their screens and what they use their screens for. Uh, I think most families still try to be somewhat intentional about that. Mm. Is it, is, um, is attention cultivating one's attention a, a sort of superpower that, superpower. It, cause I mean, if you, it, I, cause what I'm, from what I understand, it's, it's not, it's not just that you're, um, it's not just that we want to keep our smartphones away or like put it down, but it's also a sort of uh, an intentional act in saying, okay, if I'm doing, if I'm reading a book, I'm going to be solely focused on reading this book. Or if I'm meditating, right. this is what I'm going to do. Yes. Um, no, I, I think that's right. The, the, the interior senses include things like imagination. Hmm. What is imagination uh, anyway? Imagination, memory, um, uh, that there's a certain kind of power of judgment that is, is sub-rational, where, where you're just sort of recognizing things as what they are before you're theorizing them. Um, imagination is, is the, the, the power to recall sense imagery that isn't, um, isn't physically present to you at the moment. So you see a red apple in front of you and, and you do that with your, with your um, sense organ, the eye. When the apple's removed, you can, um, obviously you can also think of an apple and you can sort of theorize what are apples and things like that. But you can also have a kind of lingering impression where you can, you can visualize the apple even though it's not there. Mm. You, hold, you hold that in your imagination or um, uh, when, when a song gets stuck in your head, that's your imagination. There's, there's, the, the, you, you don't really hear it, but there's a sense in which you sort of do hear it and you can, you know, um, re-experience it um, by recalling it to your mind. Um, and that is different from um, a more abstract level of uh, thinking about something. Um, but because we're so bombarded with images, we are also, we find our, our imaginations overwhelmed. So this is why I think for Christians, it's very important to have um, forms of prayer that also redirect our imagination and our attention to other things. Um, Catholics have loved the rosary for a long time, but I actually think the rosary in a sense becomes more powerful today mm. because it, it um, not just the repetition, which allows a certain kind of focus, but the meditation on particular vignettes of, of biblical events, hmm. um, each of the, each of the five, um, each of the sets of mysteries has, has a set of decades and each decade is accompanied by um, a, a, a particular event in the life of Christ. And so you're supposed to be meditating on those events and um, to meditate, you can actually draw on your imagination. It's one thing to say, okay, I will talk about, uh, I will meditate on the crucifixion. Mm. And if you've read too much theology, maybe your mind gets really abstract and you have theories of atonement running through your head. But if you try to, um, in your mind's eye, as it were, imagine what it would be like to sit at the cross of Christ as he's suffering and dying. Try to picture what that was like. What, mm. you know, what, what is the lighting? What's the background? Who, who else is there? What are the smells and sounds? That helps you to enter into a world and, and actually to dwell on, on God through the incarnate Christ in a way that um, purely abstract thinking might not allow you to do. Hmm.
um, the Bible itself, when it tells stories about Jesus, is very, very specific and very, very concrete. It's not, I mean, I love theology. I'm not knocking theology, but the Bible is not a work of theology. It, it's a set of stories. And stories work because they aren't just um, arguments for conclusions that we can understand with our mind. They, they draw us into a world that we imagine and, and want to experience through our imagination. Um, it's why children love stories. It's why children learn through stories. As embodied beings, we, we, were, we were built to learn more through stories than through arguments. And I say that as a philosophy professor in a room full of books. Is, is the act of meditation, um, so, so for a Catholic, you, you can um, uh, meditate on the rosary. For, a, for someone, let's say, who's not even a theist, right. how, would, how could... How, how, how could they meditate? Is it possible for them to meditate? Oh, I mean, sure it is. There, there are all kinds of um, uh, versions of, of what it is to, um, uh, to meditate, to engage in a kind of centering or uh, cultivate uh, mindfulness. Mindfulness is kind of a, a catchword for the last five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and there are different influences on this too. Sometimes people think of it in terms of a kind of self-emptying, um, of, of, a, of, a, of a not thinking about things. Is that um, even possible though? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, you, you, you can try to, to calm and still your mind and, and listen instead of create thought. Um, there, there are, you know, Eastern... Um, Eastern influences, there are Stoic influences that all, even, even on a purely uh, materialist view, there are kind of physicalist view, versions of this that talk, just talk about breathing and, and the power that controlling your breath has over um, uh, your, your, your psychological state or your mindset. Um, there's truth in all of these. I mean, I, I, I happen to think that the Christian tradition um, embodies the good of all of these things um, while um, providing all kinds of opportunity to, to integrate them into, into a whole that also brings the mind um, and, and our, our spiritual nature and, and as, God, as God designed it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how well I'm answering your question right now. I, so, I, I actually think every culture does have ways of trying to help people gain control of their interior lives. So that's what I was going to So in how would, what recommendation would you give me, you know, uh, of how I could meditate better or how I can not be distracted in this age of distraction? Like what can I do yeah. practically? You, you personally, what, me, or, yeah. or, or any listener. All, uh, I, all, all our, our listeners as well. <laughs> well, I mean, um, I, guess, I guess I would, before I gave too much concrete advice, I'd want to know what, what people have tried already and, and, yeah. and what they already have integrated into their lives. So if you're already someone who reads scripture, um, there, there are ways of reading scripture that are more meditative. Yeah. Um, can read scripture more slowly or you can take a, a passage 
And instead of trying to read a, read a, a long passage, you can read a short one and, and repeat it to yourself or, or dwell on, on each individual word and, and see what kind of new richness comes from that. Uh, that's, a, that's a kind of reading as, as meditation. Um, if, if you're someone who is in, already in the habit of uh, assuming a certain posture when you pray, if you, if you, if you kneel or if you go to a, a, certain, a certain place, a chapel or something like that, um, that, that can be a part of what it is to um, sort of regain control of, of, your, uh, of your inner self. Um, I, it's, it's hard to give very, very general advice because people come at the, I mean, there are a lot of people who would be repulsed by what I just described, right? That, that they would never, they would never try that. Um, so maybe, maybe if you're someone who, um, your, your, your sense of transcendence is awakened by going for a walk in the woods, that can, that can be, um, a, a, a path to follow. I'm, I'm not claiming that they're all equal, but I do think they are all ways of um, finding, finding that um, ability to, tr to, to step outside of immediate concerns and refocus our attention. Is, is that, I'm wondering if in all the major religions, so if we're talking Christianity, Christianity, well, I don't know too much about Judaism, but Christianity, um, Islam, and Hinduism, all of them, at least the at least the more traditional ones, have set times of prayers. So you have like yeah. morning prayer, afternoon prayer, evening prayer. Is there any significance to that, in your opinion? Like, do you do you know if there's any significance to why that why all these uh, major religions have very specific times for when they're supposed to be praying? Well, I haven't studied that. That's a, I think it's a, it's a great question. Um, it seems to me there's a couple of reasons why it makes sense. One is that um, it's hard to do all the time, so it can be helpful to have time set aside where you're called back to that kind of behavior. Right? We, we're, we're physical, temporal beings. We live in time, so we have, the things we do have to, have to take place in time. Hmm. Um, Having set times also helps to keep people accountable to each other. So if you're in a community, if you're in a culture where it's not just that you feel an obligation to pray at this time, but you know that I know that you know that I'm that, that we pray at this time, then right. um, it, it can make it easier. Um, almost anything in a culture, not just prayer, but mealtime, um, when you clean your room, laundry day, uh, tends to become ritualized. Mm -hmm. it, it's truly integrated into uh, if it becomes a cultural habit that there's a, there's a degree of ritualization to it. So um, it does seem to me natural that there would be times of day to pray. Also that there would be a pattern during the week, right? Seventh day and a pattern during the year right, where dif different, um, different aspects of the spiritual life are emphasized more than others, right? Christians have more penitential seasons, more, more, more festive seasons. There's times when we fast. There's times when we feast. Uh, we, we concentrate on the birth of Jesus. Uh, one time of year, we concentrate on his suffering and death another time of year. Um, all of that makes sense that we, we give things rhythms in the short term and in the mm -hmm. long term mm -hmm. to make them more integrated into a sustainable cultural habit. 
That's very interesting that you say that the 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 aspect of our rituals because you have we the, I think there's a uh, a negative connotation to ritualism or ritualistic practices in our society, but it seems that it seems there is something very important about having a ritual having rituals as humans, where you know if it is that I wake up at five thirty to you know to you know work out and then meditate and then shower I do this every yeah. day. Every every week, every month, every year, it there seems to be some power in that. Where as as a as a human, you you feel like you are uh, you're mastering yourself. Yeah, you're, it does a couple of things. It helps you master yourself because you you are able to hold yourself accountable and and know that you're on task. Um, it also it also frees up your mind. Because once something has become a ritual, mm-hmm. it's not something that you have to keep negotiating and renegotiating and making mm-hmm. new decisions about. It's already decided, right? We're not going to open this up for conversation. We go to church on Sunday. We're not going to open this up for conversation. It's, it's mealtime. We all come and sit down for the meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also, I mean, there, there's basic efficiencies that, that are gained there in any community. If, if, if every... If everything that every member of a community had to do every day had to be um, opened up again for renegotiation, we'd never get anywhere. Hmm. So, so rituals help us to, to prioritize what, what we know is important and to sort of encode the, the, the memory of the culture. We've decided this is important and this is what we are going to do. Hmm. Um, and um, it, it's something that I think most parents experience with their kids. Kids kids in a way resist ritual because they're immature and, and they live in the moment and they want to exercise their will. But it's what, what you find is that if you, if you're successful at introducing your kids to appropriate rituals for their age, they love those rituals hmm. and they thrive on them and they're disoriented. If you take those rituals away, hmm. um, that there's something, there is something about us that wants to develop habits of activity, especially habits of activity that are shared with others, because we experience something in those that we, we can't really experience when we're, when we're alone or when we're, when we're doing things supposedly with more freedom. Right. And there, what? there is a degree of freedom in uh, participating in ritual. It's, it's not as if it constrains its structures. It's, it's like saying that rules of poetry are, are, are um, oppressive. The poet finds them liberating. The poet knows, okay, this is how a sonnet works. I feel free to write a sonnet now that I know the rules. Uh, rituals, rituals structure our freedom. They don't, they don't oppose it. But that, that would be in contrast to uh, a, a liberal understanding of freedom, where freedom, it would be, I think, um, Patrick Deneen, in Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, sure. I, yeah. he describes it as, I'm, uh, if if he if he listens to this podcast, I'm apologizing if I'm Sorry. paraphrasing it wrong. But um, I think he describes it, liberalism's understanding of freedom as uh, doing whatever the w- will pleases, or something along doing whatever you desire without right. any constraints. Right. And but the freedom you're describing is very different. It is. I'm describing the freedom of a, of an acquired habit. Um, if if you've never learned the piano and you sit in front of a piano, you can be, 
you can be free in the liberal or libertarian sense, but not be able to play the piano. Um, if you submit yourself to the discipline of learning how to play the piano um, and do all the onerous practice and go through the rituals that your instructor teaches you, then when you sit in front of the piano, you have a freedom that you didn't have before, mm. which is the ability to play a beautiful piece of music. Um, and I mean, I, I use that example with, um, I, it's not, it's not originally mine. A lot of people use examples of, of playing a musical instrument as an example of a habit, but, um, to go back to the idea of cultivating a virtue, temperance is a habit. Mm. If you are an intemperate person and, and you're brought to the all you can eat dessert bar, yeah. right? You can't help yourself and you're going to overeat in, in a sense. You're not free mm. to do otherwise. It would, it would feel painful. It would feel like a constraint if yeah. someone said, no, you cannot have everything you want. But if you're a temperate person and you're not prone to overindulge, then you are more free to do what is good and more truly enjoyable, which is, is to eat the right amount. Mm. And it would actually be painful to you if you were forced to overeat. You would, you would, you would feel that as a... Uh, a discomfort that, that that's what you would resist so, um, human so our, would... our habits shape the way we experience pleasure and pain and and the way we experience freedom right. um, and it's and it's not uh it's not a matter of um freedom being free from any law mm -hmm. but true freedom is the freedom to discern what what are the true laws that guide our action and to be able to fulfill them Okay, so true freedom would be the one's capacity to to have discipline over one's um, actions and desires, and kind of reining it in and saying, "Look, I'm I'm I am the master here." Um, but that that understanding of freedom is it seems so. What what's the word I'm looking for? It seems so slavish that's the word i'm looking for yes you know you're like yeah. oh really like i'm not free to do whatever i want i thought that was true freedom yeah well in 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 the republic um uh, plato's republic um the whole conversation about the the ideal city and how to how to raise a, a, a philosopher kings who would be worthy of, of ruling over the, the ideal city all of that is framed by the conversation that Socrates has in the first book with Thrasymachus. And Thrasymachus has this view, what you're calling the liberal view, it's that we think of it as modern, but it's, it's not. Mm. Um, it's, it's as old as philosophy. Um, he has this view that to be free is to do whatever you want, to be able to get away with stuff, and not have people stop you. And um, Socrates characterizes that mm. as the, the view of a tyrannical soul, one who is controlled by his appetites. So, um, yeah, you can be a slave to the law or you can be a slave to your appetites, but you don't have a choice not to be a slave. Hmm. What Thrasymachus was advocating was not authentic freedom, but the freedom to do whatever he wanted. And what Socrates is able to do, and it takes a very long time, this is why the Republic is 
10 books long. It's the second longest book of all, of all the things that Plato wrote. Um, it, it takes a long time to make this argument. But, but the Republic ends by returning to the problem that Thrasymachus raised. Thrasymachus is silent after, after book one. He goes away he, because a tyrannical soul can't even take part in philosophical conversation. It's not even capable of it. So, so people who are more capable of philosophical conversation, like Socrates' friends, Glaucon and Adamantus, they pick up Thrasymachus' position and they, they kind of domesticate it and make it capable of being engaged with mm. as a set of ideas. And, and Socrates spends books two through eight discussing with them, you know, what is justice and, and how, how can we achieve it? And by book nine, he, he goes back to Thrasymachus's problem. And, and by then they have a whole theory of the, the structure of the soul and the theory of virtues that they can use to describe what's going on in the kind of person that Thrasymachus described. And that person is a slave too. He's just a slave to his appetite. And he mm. thinks he's free, but he's actually the least free. The, the toddler having a tantrum and banging on the keys of the piano is not more free than the virtuoso pianist who is constrained by long-built habits, but is more free to actually play something on the piano than the in the screaming toddler. Hmm. That's. I think that's the idea. The the um, the analogy of the piano is is. I think it, it explains it perfectly because it's very similar to. Um, uh, I practice Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, the martial art. Sure. And um, you know, in that sense, when you first start brazilian jiu-jitsu you are free to do whatever you want with your body you can flail it around you can try tossing people you can try submitting people right but the ones who always win the battle are the ones who have constraint over what their bodies can do in what positions right. they can move it in so that that you know that idea of freedom is it's i guess for a human it would take a lifetime to cultivate that yeah i think that's right and how that, that imagery is also in a lot of religions too, right? So, so you know, the Bible talks about um, being a slave to sin or being a slave to Christ. Hmm. It's not it's not slave versus free. It's what what will you choose to submit to? Um, or if and if you don't choose, then you are then you're submitting to something that you haven't chosen. <laughs> right. But but it, it's a very very common imagery in in people's. Um, trying to make sense of the experience of what it is to learn and what it is to, to exercise uh, responsible choice in life. Uh, responsible choice involves deciding what it is that you're going to treat as important or authoritative. It doesn't mean thinking that there is no such thing. Is there a, is so within, within let's say uh, Western thought, all these ancient philosophers, they all tend to have a very similar understanding of freedom, the freedom that you're describing. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be after, maybe it's after like um, David Hume, our understanding of freedom started to change and where we have the, uh, a liberalistic understanding of freedom is that, 
is there a way to overturn this understanding or, you know, do we have to, do we have to uh, lock ourselves away in the forest and start a new society? Um, It it is common and, and, and there's good reasons why it's common to sort of distinguish an ancient versus a modern view of, of freedom. Um, as I suggested before, the, 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 the character of Thrasymachus suggests mm-hmm. that, the, that the, the so-called modern view has been around for a long time. Um, in, in fact, in, in book two of the Republic, when Glaucon and Adamantus try to reframe Thrasymachus's position, what they do is they end up coming, with, coming up with what we would recognize as a social contract theory. Oh. That, that society is something artificial that is, is made by um, decisions of people to, to agree about what will count as justice, mm-hmm. but then justice is the product of human will, not something that exists independent of human will. Um, and you know, if you take an introductory class in, in political philosophy, you'll learn that that's, that's the view of early modern philosophers, that's Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, um, maybe you could throw Machiavelli in there. Um, but um, it, it seems to me that historically, it's not that it's, not that it's a new idea to think of freedom that way, uh, but that um, something about the conditions of um, early modern European society made that, gave that idea a, a larger hearing and made it seem more powerful than it had ever seemed before. Um, so, you know, when, when Hobbes, when Hobbes, we, we typically think of him as, as close to the source of social contract here. But when, when Hobbes came up with it, 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 it wasn't so much entirely new, but, but he was writing in circumstances in which the, the theory seemed to serve a, a, a more useful purpose than it would have if, um, if it had been articulated in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, for instance. Mm. Um, and maybe that has to do with a kind of fragmentation of society, fewer shared values, right? So if you don't, if you don't have uh, consciously shared values in a community, mm-hmm. in a sense, you don't have a community anymore. The community is dedicated to a common good. But um, if, you have, if you have something that's trying to function as like a community, but without shared values, then it's very hard to say that everybody is under the same authority or under the same um, set of standards about right and wrong. And so what do, you, what do you need if you're going to have a theory of government? You're going to have a, a theory that describes procedures that allow people to live together in peace without pursuing the common good. Mm. Um, and and it's, not that, it's not that Hobbes or Locke or Rousseau thought that human beings should just do whatever they None of them was Thrasymachus. None of them was a tyrannical soul, um, or they wouldn't have been able to write books. Mm. But they they were writing in circumstances in which the assumptions they made about human nature are a lot closer to the assumptions that Thrasymachus made, where it's all about power, than they are to the assumptions that Socrates made, where um, no, it's not just about power; it's about how we exercise it and whether we can exercise power well. That's a lot in answer to your question, but I'm trying to come uh, in a sense. I'm trying to make the, the history of political theory a little more complicated. It's not as if there was a golden age when everybody understood uh, the common good and then we lost it. And then what do we do? Um, 
But if I'm right, that it's more complicated than that. And there's, there's always been a longing for uh, awareness of the common good and a living according to it, but also temptations to ignore or forget the common good mm. and still just come up with uh, rules for behavior to, to help us live in peace. Then the solution, right? The practical, like, what do we do now? How can we, how can we reclaim something? Isn't so much about um, going backwards or um, reinstituting a golden age. It's, it's more, okay, well, how, how do we today best make the case that the, um, the liberal so-called view of human nature is impoverished, has too short a horizon, and is leaving something out that we all know is important to us? And what can we do to remind ourselves that there is more importance to life than um, just people doing whatever they want? Yeah. Uh, can I mention current events, by the way? Yeah, of course. You can mention all so, you want. Um, in, in connection with this, right, we're, we're, we're talking, I don't know when this will go live uh, on, on, online, but it's, um, we're recording it um, in, in late March and uh, most of the uh, country um you're in canada right and yeah. is your country mostly on sort of uh social distancing protocols yes, now sir. <laughs> city, city businesses closed down and that that's that's what we're experiencing here in the u.s as well so um in a sense even though we're calling it social distancing and people are staying home and and not engaging in normal everyday community activities uh, what we're engaging in on the large scale is a kind of um, exercise in um, working together for the common good. Mm. So, so the, the crisis of a pandemic is reminding us that uh, me just doing what I want and you just doing what you want is not enough. That we might have to limit what we want for the sake of what, is, what we know is good for the whole. Now, I know there are people who, who disagree with this interpretation. So I, I've seen people who, who criticize the social distancing method as too extreme, um, that, that, um, it, or even that they show too much of a concern about the economy instead of about spiritual goods. I don't quite understand that position, but I've seen that argument. But it seems to me that what we're doing is we're even admitting that, that it will allow our economy to crash before we allow certain goods of um, human community to fall apart. And um, my hope, I'm I, in a way I'm trying to see the silver lining in something that is, is a very difficult and painful time for some people. Um, but my hope is that this is, this is a kind of collective reminder we're engaged in a, in a sort of large scale civic liturgy of not not getting too close to each other, but by doing that conspicuously, we are actually showing each other that we care about something bigger than any one of our individual uh, wants or desires. Uh, this, is, this is an act of self-discipline or an act of, of cultural fasting or something like that, where right. um, hopefully it's a reminder that liberal, liberal theory can't account for this. Hmm. What, uh, what, what about like just saying that we, we've, we are, recreating in an, a, a new social contract between us saying 
look, we both agree that we will not go out because it'll harm us. And we might harm each other. Can you interpret well, it that if, way? It, I, it could be interpreted that way, except that we've had public officials telling us not to go out. And many of us have wanted our public officials to tell us not to go out. Um, now, we can say that's partly because we don't trust our neighbors to make the right social contract with us, so we want to force them to do what we want them to do. I mean, I guess you could give a cynical liberal interpretation of that. But I think the way, I mean, I've talked to people who have all kinds of different opinions and levels of concern about how we're handling pandemic. And I imagine there's, there's similar conversations in, in Canada. Um, but I think most people have experienced it as a, a, a realization that this is not something that can be controlled from the top down, mm. nor simply from the bottom up, but where we need individual people and political authorities at every level, right? school principals, mayors, governors, um, presidents and prime ministers, and everybody in between, to be making the best decisions on behalf of their communities so that those communities can be preserved. Mm. And we don't, on, on, before the pandemic, on a day-to-day -day basis, we did not experience that. Things just ran and you could do what you wanted and it would work without thinking about whether it was um, contributing to the common good or whether other people were trying to contribute to the common good or making sacrifices for, for you or for uh, others in the community. Is the, 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 this pandemic has made me rethink the role of government in that, I, I mean, in that I, like, like you said, I, I, I was one of the people who thought, man, the government should really step in and say something and tell everyone, hey, right. just stay inside. Whereas before, I would have been less inclined to say that. I would have said that's sure. that's not the place of the government to do. Um, and so, is the role? Would you say the role of the government is to um, enforce the com the common good, or enforce people not enforce, but um, encourage its citizens to pursue the common good, as opposed to just setting limitations on what they can yeah. and cannot do? So I. Um almost by definition, yes. So okay. to, be, to be a political leader is to have care of a community. And to have care of a community is to help the members of that community to, to realize the goods of that community. Mm. Um, that is not, I mean, pe people are gonna be tempted to say, okay, well that sounds socialist or collectivist. It, it's not necessarily, because if you have a theory of human nature such that human beings can't contribute to the good of the community without some personal initiative and um, uh, without, without attention to their own individual gifts and strengths and weaknesses. Um, if, you, if you have that view of human nature where individual uh, participation is important, then um, what I said is compatible with something very much like libertarianism, right? So, so maybe the way that the, the political authority best contributes to the government the common good is in most cases to stay out of the way and not interfere um, the the most basic obligation of, uh, of someone in authority is to protect the community from threats to keep it from falling apart um, that that's actually the, the I mean that's what we're seeing with the pandemic reaction 
Um, and it's, it's what Plato described in the Republic, that the, the leaders are needed not to get everything done, because that's all done by the producing class. The leaders are needed to coordinate and preserve the unity of everything getting done as part of a community. And then, and then the, the guardian class is needed when that needs to be protected from extrinsic and intrinsic threats that might, that might tear it apart. Um, so, so the, the, the first good of a community is its unity and, and the first responsibility of a, of a, um, a person in authority is, is to sustain and preserve the good of the, of the, uh, to preserve the unity of the community. Um, and then, then we can have all kinds of practical, pragmatic, prudential arguments about what else is needed, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, uh, a more doctrinaire libertarian might say, well, that's why the only thing government should do is um, uh, fight wars and um, uh, enforce contracts, and that's it. Don't do anything else. But it's also, it's also possible to say, well, one of the things that we need government to do is um, help us with roads because individuals can't do that on their own. Mm. Um, and, and we're going to need people who are coordinating individual behavior to build roads. I'm just taking a mundane example. Yeah. But the building of roads could be something that you add to that. Um, and uh, if, depending on the technologies and, and systems that you have, it, it's not crazy to think that government has some role in coordinating healthcare, uh, maybe not as much in normal, healthy circumstances, uh, but certainly during a pandemic, yeah. you want you want political authority to be marshalling whatever support it can to, to protect the community from being decimated. Is is um, in terms of in terms of politicians, what would what would a a good definition of a good politician be? That's a great question. Um, I'm tempted right now. Uh, I've been talking a lot about Plato, but another another person that I've read and maybe you've seen me talking about him is is Nassim Taleb, Nassim, um, yes. and he has some interesting things to say that I actually believe are compatible with Plato, even though he doesn't he doesn't um, package them that way. Um, I mean, ideally. I would say what you want in a leader is someone who is virtuous and being especially wise and so capable of making good decisions. Um, that might not sound all that helpful. Um, and even Plato admits that that's probably um, an ideal that is not going to be put into practice. But then, so what is the second best in, in, in modern political theory, um, there's a lot of talk about, okay, uh, given that we're not going to try to ask um, about what the best society looks like, let's pick the, the form of government that is going to best ensure that bad things don't happen and that good things can happen. Um, the, the least bad form of government or the, the form of government with the most checks and balances, a mixed form of government that has the virtues of, of all the different forms. Um, and, and avoids the vices of the, so th those became, become some of the central debates in, in modern political theories about the form of government. But I think you could, you could say, um, you could say this, if you can't guarantee virtuous leaders, you could try to guarantee that even a vicious leader 
is going to have his sense of self-interest mm. aligned with the interest of the community as a whole. So that um, what you don't want to have, what, what the, the, the tyrant that Thrasymachus describes, or even the tyrant that um, Sophocles portrays in the Antigone, um, who, who makes arbitrary rules and prevents people from um, observing basic pieties towards members of their family, um, Creon the tyrant, what you don't want is someone who's ruling in their self-interest at the expense of others. You don't want to have a situation in which someone can enrich themselves yeah. uh, by taking from others without consequences. You don't have, want to have someone who can get away with making bad decisions that hurt other people, but don't hurt him or her. So um, if there's a way to set up a government, and you know, in principle, something with democratic mechanisms should help with this, although it mm -hmm. doesn't always. There's a way to set up a government so that politicians always have, here's the Taleb phrase, skin in the game, right. um, so that if they make a bad decision, they will pay personally. And, and if they are also never allowed to um, essentially be grifters, they're never allowed to personally profit at other people's expense. Mm. It, um, then even someone who doesn't have perfectly virtuous motives uh, even someone who is a little selfish uh, or a lot selfish or someone who is, is um, uh, uh, you know, not, is out to enrich himself. If, if the, if the, um, the processes and structures in which he's exercising power align his self-interest with the interest of the whole, then, then that minimizes the damage that he can do. Mm. Right? In, in a sense, it, it, um, it, it, it creates external conditions for behavior that, that is virtuous, even if the person who is performing that behavior is not a virtuous person. How, how, how would, okay, let's, let's say you have a politician that's not virtuous in the strictest sense. Right. How would they be able to um, encourage, encourage uh, the citizens to pursue the common good. So is, is the common good something that's easily um, um, attainable or like not attainable, but understood? Does, does everyone, you know, is it, is it, is it something that, you know, you can sit down for like 10 minutes and it's like, okay, this is the common good. Oh yes. We all understand. Let's go, you know, work towards this. Or is the common good something much more abstract? Well, um, in, in a, in a modern political community, I think the common good is something that we, we probably don't talk about or theorize very much because we take a lot of it for granted. I mean, the common good of, of the political community is its health, mm. its safety. Um, it has, it has uh, uh, you know, we, we, we talk in sort of semi-abstractions about the economy, but what do we really mean? Well, we want people to be able to um, have work that's productive um, and that enables them to um, pursue the, the kinds of things that human beings um, uh, find valuable in general, right? Like being able to have a family, being able mm -hmm. to have a home. Um, you know, in principle, I guess human beings can live without those things. Um, and technology makes it even easier every day to live without some of those things. But even, even so, right, um, we, we want a society in which people have access to um, food, shelter, 
um, uh, social relationships, mm. um, meaningful work. Um, and meaningful doesn't, doesn't have to have to mean that it's, um, their dream job or that they, that's where they get their primary sense of fulfillment. But it, it, it means that, that they know that it is important and productive. Maybe, maybe I wish I were, a, a full-time musician, but I don't have the talent. So I have to be a car mechanic, but at least I know by fixing people's cars, I'm helping them. I mean, we couldn't survive without car mechanics. So that's, that, that's meaningful work, even if it's not what I want to be doing. Is it, so if, 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 if that's something that we're supposed to pursue as citizens, what role does then religion play? Is, is, is it just something that it's like the, it's like the cherry on top, the religion? Or mm. Okay, community? I like that question. Um, I might ask you to open it up a little bit more. My yeah. short answer to that is that religion does two things. It, it reinforces the, the need to pursue those things that I just described. So, mm. so religion also comprehends the natural goods. Um, there, there, are, um, there are sort of natural law truths about the, the things that um, individuals and families need to have in order to thrive. And religion tends to reinforce those things by mentioning them and talking about them as important. Uh, but then religion also adds to that, uh, that that there might be something more worth pursuing than um, the the maintenance of the political society. Mm. So after after we've done the work of sustaining our political society at every level, right? I'm, I'm sustaining myself and my family and my community and doing my small part to sustain the good of the whole country, right? For six days a week. Mm -hmm. But then there's a day set aside where that's not what we're primarily concerned with. Um, and I, I don't just mean uh, that we, we do that only one day a week, but the, but the structure of, of a Sabbath um, is, is a, pretty, a pretty concrete reminder that while mm -hmm. most of what we do might be directed towards um, uh, the here and now or natural ends and goods. Um, we also, there's something in us that needs time apart to pursue something that transcends. Um, so one of the things that you want in a political leader is someone who recognizes that the goods of politics are not the ultimate good. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, you'd like in, in, in contemporary American terms, this, one, this means that you want a, a political leader who recognizes some place for religious liberty. So, so most Americans don't want their politician to tell them how to worship, but we all want a politician who recognizes that we should be free to worship. Right. Um, and one of, I don't think it's wrong for a politician to, to be very much aware that part of what he wants to create in a healthy political society is the kind of society in which people have not just the freedom and the sense of the ability to worship, but but the um, uh, all the, all the things necessary to support a healthy culture and habit of worship. Hmm. Um, is the does that mean that um, so let's say so if religion is that which uh, encourages the citizens to continue on pursuing the common good 
is it fair to say that all the major religions are after the same goal? Are all the, uh, are all the religions somewhat um, uh, somewhat uh, geared towards human beings, uh, towards getting humans to flourish? Yes and no. <laughs> um, I mean, th there is there is a, a sameness to it. There's a, there's a sense in which all human beings are are all all religions are trying to direct human beings to God. Um, and then then we would say that the difference is that they they might have different ideas about um, uh, the, the the nature of the path mm. towards that end. Um, that's the simplistic answer, but yeah. there's also there's also ways in which we could argue that they they that the different religions have uh, different conceptions of what it would look like to achieve that end based mm -hmm. on maybe different conceptions of what human nature is. Um, so the the Christian conception in which the God that we're seeking has already made himself one of us. United himself to human nature. I'm sorry. He has skin in the game. He has skin in the game, um, and and he, he's given us some skin in the game too. Um, that that isn't just a different path, hmm. although it is a different path. It's also a it's a different path because it is characterizing human beings in a different way. Than maybe um, a, a religion that talks about um, annihilation or um, loss of self or um, a, you know the, the caricature of a platonic view where our, our soul just has to escape our our body and the physical world yeah. is bad or something like that. There's a different conception of human nature there, um, and you know even even taking the um, the the great Abrahamic religions. Um, you know, wanting to remain, um, you know, sensitive and not go into too many details, one can certainly argue that there are, despite the similarities, there are differences between Judaism, Islam, and Christianity that, that are, are not just, oh, well, it's a different ritual or it's a different, it's a different path. Um, one of, one of the things that, um, uh, Pope Benedict is famous for is, is a, a speech called the Regensburg Address, in which he um, he quotes from and describes a conversation between a Christian and, and Muslim um, theologian, medieval uh, theologians, um, about the different ideas those religions have of, about the relationship between uh, the will and the intellect, um, and whether it makes more sense. I'm, I'm very, very loosely paraphrasing here. It's been a little bit since I read the Regensburg Address, but um, as I recall, it essentially boils down to the difference between imagining human beings as um, truth seekers, mm -hmm. and so being fulfilled in God as truth, versus human beings as um, limited wills that must submit to the God conceived of as power. Hmm. It's a, if, if God is ultimately power, and I have no idea whether this is fair to Islam or to some forms of Islam more than others or not. 
Um, and there were arguments about that after Ratzinger wrote the Regensburger draft. Um, but certainly it's, it's a sort of philosophically interesting alternative. Um, if you conceive of God as power, and so our path to him is to submit to him as our ruler, um, and, and a part of that means even submitting our intellect so that we accept absurdity or we recognize that um, there are things that by human terms must seem false, but we, we give up our, ra we even surrender our rationality mm. in order to submit to God, right? Then you will have not just a, a different view of God, but a different view of human nature right. from what I take to be the Christian view, which is that we are supposed to submit to God and he is, he is the ultimate power, but he, his ultimate power is not different from uh, God as ultimate truth. And so he doesn't ask us to embrace contradiction or utter absurdity. He might ask us to m embrace mystery um, and wonder. Mm. Uh, but but um, for, for Ratzinger, this is why it's easier for Christians to see, and this is, this is what was so controversial, but he, he, he was trying to present it as a philosophical argument, it's easier for Christians to see how violence, especially violence in forced conversion, is never compatible with Christian faith. And, and historically, it's not a part of the Christian evangelism to, to force people to convert under threat. Um, I, and, and again, I don't know, I haven't studied Islam, I haven't studied enough history to know how fair this is, but his claim was that this, this is why it, it seems at least tolerable under certain forms of Islam anyway, that conversion could include coercion. Right. Um, there's a parallel here, by the way, to our conversation previously about ancient versus modern mm -hmm. views of liberty. Right? If it's all about power, as Thrasymachus or Hobbes say, then um, we, ha we have to allow for coercion, and the best we can do is come up with a government whose coercion we somehow consent to. Mm -hmm. So we get the Leviathan. Right. But if it's, if it's not ultimately all about power, but there is a truth that we see, mm -hmm. and power should be exercised under the authority of truth, then um, raw coercion is wrong, mm. and, and there is a greater place for the role of persuasion, moving people to freely submit to something that they recognize as their own good. Uh, and incidentally, in, in Plato's Laws, which is let, not as often read as the Republic, uh, there's a lot more attention to the role of persuasion in lawmaking. Mm. Um, because it, it, it's one of Plato's primary principles in the law is that the law has to be reasonable. It's not arbitrary. It is reasonable, which means that it is in conformity with, with human nature and human freedom. And so um, good laws... Um, actually are more about helping people to understand and believe that something is good for them than telling them what to do. So this, this religion then um, uh, point human being, uh, the human nature towards something, towards its ultimate end? Can you have, I guess the question would be, can you have can an, uh, an, an agnostic or an atheist that lives in let's say this this perfect society where everyone's pursuing the common good and there's religion sure. that encourages this 
an atheist or an agnostic in this in this society can yep. they live um a purposeful a, a purposeful slash meaningful life uh, absolutely i mean the, the 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 it's a very different question to ask um you know uh, will will a Christian say that they can get to heaven? Hmm. Uh, probably not without conversion, right? If, if the only way is through the person of Jesus Christ. But most of the time when we're talking about living a fulfilling life and, and participating wholly in political society, that's not what we're talking about. And certainly, um, I mean, it, it, it's a good question, but we all know um, uh, from personal experience that there there are, that's uh, not only possible, but very common. Mm. Um, and not just on the large scale of a political society, but in a small community, in a town. In a, I, I teach in a Catholic college. Um, and it, I think it's important for the identity of the college that there is a, 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 a critical mass of faculty who are Catholic. But yeah. nobody expects all faculty to be Catholic. And in fact, I think we're, we're a richer community because we include non-Catholic faculty faculty from other religions, faculty with no particular religious background at all. Um, and we all recognize that we can share in and contribute to the common good of truth seeking. Um, in a college community, having some non-Catholics might keep the Catholics more honest, right? We can't, all, we can't take things for granted and we have to continually show the rationality and reasonability of the things that, um, uh, that we hold dear. And um, yeah, the, the idea isn't, well, uh, we're going we're gonna to design a community in which you have to um, subscribe to a set doctrine before you can participate or communicate. Um, most, most communities can require a fair amount of flexibility of belief, as long as everybody knows what, what the expectations are. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if there are beliefs that are privileged, right, if it's a religious community, if their beliefs that are privileged, if people understand that um, uh, not sharing them uh, is also compatible with respecting them or valuing the role that they can play or being open to learning more about them. Um, there are faculty who wouldn't be happy teaching where I teach. Right? If, if you hate Catholicism and think that it's um, uh, a, a, a dangerous, um, evil force right you 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 wouldn't be happy teaching here and, and people probably wouldn't want you to be part of the community but if you're if you're simply someone who uh, might object or who thinks that catholicism is wrong um even someone who thinks that maybe catholicism is is dangerously wrong but interesting and worth learning more about so that we can clarify what that is like then then you can definitely participate in an intellectual mm -hmm. academic community as an uh as, as a full member of that community so what what would you say is the purpose of the human life you know we have um tolstoy's confession right know, where he, you know where he goes through he's like look i've achieved everything and i just feel like absolute crap you know i don't i feel like you know i don't i don't feel I don't think life is worth living, but I don't have enough courage to kill myself. Right. Um, but then he comes back at the end to his Christian faith. And so what I'm wondering is if one does not have, a, and I, you know, I, I'm, 
if my non-religious friends are listening to it, this is not a bashing. I'm not bashing them, but I am wondering if one does not have any form of um, a religion or an idea that there is something far greater or tra- something that transcends them. Can you s- just, is it possible to have what I would call ultimate meaning in what you do? Cause you know, I can, I can have meaning like talking to you, for example, it's meaningful right. to me cause I'm, I'm learning, you know, afterwards I'll talk to my wife. It's meaningful. I'll spend time with her. But then when I'm, you know, sitting uh, lying down on my bed in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about my existence, it all, everything that happens is very, very finite and in one sense trivial if, you know, because existence just seems so, so like right. you're just kind of brought into existence. Right. So like in terms of if you don't have a religion, if you're not, if you don't believe in anything other than um, uh, that, let's just say your belief is just that we are, you know, just the evolutionary product and there's nothing more to it. You kind of, you have 70 years to live and then that's it. Is it, can we, can we really, is it really, is it possible? That's, I guess that is my question. Is it possible? Is it really possible to say that it is meaningful? You can say Um, yes. (laughs) It was a long question. I mean, what do you, what do you think your friends who aren't religious would say? I would say they would say yes, but, yeah. You know, I, that's what I would say, but reading, when I, when I read the confe- uh, confession, Tolstoy's confession, you know, it, it really struck a chord with me because prior to that, you know, I would have said, yes, you know, people can have meaningful lives without religion. And Tolstoy, I mean, I'm assuming he's honest and he's yeah. telling the truth when he's writing it. You know, he's someone who achieved it. I mean, he, he's someone who's achieved everything. You know, he had all the money. He had the Nobel Literature Prize. And he's, at the end, he was just like, yeah, well, really, all this is just complete garbage. This is crap. I should, I should kill myself because this is all meaningless. But I don't have enough balls to kill myself. And then, you know, he goes through at the end and comes back. So, so it, it's kind of stuck with me. The, his, ultimate, yeah. his ultimate conclusion is stuck with me. And I, I, I'm just curious to know. I mean, I, th- I think obviously, um, yes, people um, can live. Well, you actually asked two questions. I don't know if you noticed that. You yeah. noticed you asked, you, you didn't just ask about the meaning of life. What did I the, at, at first, you asked about the purpose of life. Yeah. Does life has a, have a purpose? Yeah. Um, and then you started talking about um, the meaning of life. And maybe in a minute, I'll talk about why I think those are mm. different questions. But okay. I don't think anybody ever turns to religion as an answer to either of those questions. Mm. They don't turn to religion. They might turn to God. And they might, they might find in a religion a, a, a particular way of um, finding God. But um, religion to me sounds like a kind of, it's not just because it sounds like a, a sociological category. But, but I, I don't know of anybody who converted to Christianity because they thought, my life lacks purpose. Here's a religion. I'll just subscribe to that. Right. Um, you convert to a form of Christianity, say, because you, you, you start to believe that it's true that there is a God who loves you 
and mm. he reached out to you in a particular way to to claim you as his adopted son and you think oh well if i believe that that makes me a christian you, you're not seeking religion you're seeking the truth and when you find the truth and realize that there's a religion that's that's helping you articulate the truth that you are discovering and that, mm -hmm. that is helping you wake up to that truth um then you find it and so i think people who haven't found um a religion to articulate the truth that they're discovering can still be discovering the truth. Um, there, there's lots of different kinds of atheists, lots of different kind of kinds of agnostics. So, um, and and it's very rare to find the the real. I think it's very rare to find the real, real strident ones who are absolutely closed off, and and you know, mostly they're objecting to particular forms of religion or to their own childhood experience of religion or whatever. And if you if you can um, talk to them in, in some um, uh, kind of disinterested way, um, you can get them to acknowledge that they might think that there's a, uh, an, an ultimate origin of things or, mm -hmm. a, or a transcendent truth or a, a mystery that can't be comprehended or something like that, right? So to the extent that people are, are open to that, and, and are even open to thinking of themselves as on a path towards learning more about what that is. Um, it, it, it seems to me that, that um, yes, we can, we can say that they find um, meaning or purpose, but do you want me to say about something about why I think those are different questions? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, so I actually, I did some research on this uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I had never been asked to, to give a lecture on, on the meaning of life before, but someone invited me to give a lecture on the meaning of life. And it, it struck me, because I, I mainly study um, uh, ancient and, and medieval philosophy. I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the whole history of philosophy. But in, in, in the thinkers that I had read in ancient and, and medieval philosophy, I'd never actually come across someone formulating a question of the meaning of life or, or anything that would be translated that way um, in English. And so I, I, I had a hunch, which I confirmed, that nobody, nobody actually ever asked about the meaning of life until the 19th century. And Tolstoy is one of the first to do it. Oh. Um, the, the question of the meaning of life is, mm. is, a, is a late modern invention. What about Eclipse, it, the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, I, I, if you can point me to <laughs> a, a passage. Um, but the general gist of it. Theory, is it well, what I have no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not doubting that there are books, which, when we look back, having learned to formulate the question of the meaning of life, yeah. there are books that we go back and look at and say, "Oh, well, that's that's so and so talking about the meaning of life." So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've seen it said that Plato and Aristotle asked about the meaning of life, um, uh, that that Augustine asked about the meaning of life. But but my point, it's first of all a linguistic one. There's no, there's nothing equivalent in 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 other languages that that deserves to be translated as the meaning of life. Um, and that that phrase cropped up in most European languages around the same time in the mid in the mid nineteenth um, century. Um, originally, um, some authors actually used it as a joke. Carlyle, Thomas Carlyle, the the British um, author. Um, uh, made fun of German philosophy by using the phrase, the meaning of life. Um, but, but what was asked before then, if, if you go to these older texts yeah. that we think are asking about the meaning of life, they're asking the question that you asked first, which is about the purpose of life. Mm. 
okay. the purpose or the end or the good of life. So, um, and, and here's why I think those are different. The, the question of the purpose or end of life suggests that there is a human nature mm-hmm. that is common to all human beings, despite our differences, all, all the particularities that, that distinguish you from me and that are important to making you you and making me me. Despite all of those, we share something, a human nature, that, that can be fulfilled or completed in a, mm-hmm. in, in, in a common way. Your path to that fulfillment might be different than mine, right? But, but we can still describe it as a completion of our nature as humans. Okay. Um, so it's not, it's not about what is, what is my particular purpose as a, as, a, as a father, as a husband, as a teacher. It's what, what is the purpose of human life? What, what are we for? What are we made for? And it, it's a question of final causality. Mm. So, so human nature is, is what are we by virtue of our formal cause, which comes from in classical thinking, a first efficient cause, God as the agent who created us, but he created us with a particular form for a particular end. So, so it, 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 the question of purpose is, is tied in with the whole classical perspective of, of uh, different senses of causality that explain things as ordered towards an, towards an end. The question of meaning is a kind of weak substitute for that question when people don't believe in uh, that sense of causality, uh, when, when they don't believe necessarily that there is even such a thing as common human nature anymore. Yeah. Um, the meaning of life ends up therefore becoming a much more personal question. So the meaning of life for you might be different than the meaning of life for me. Mm. Meaning in, in the context of that question is often something that we, um, we create or if we don't create it, it's at least something that we subjectively experience. Mm-hmm. If you think about the word meaning, it, it implies it, it's meaningful to someone, right? So it, it would be very hard for me if you say, this is, this is how I perceive the meaning of life. It'd be very hard for me to gainsay that and say you're wrong. Because if, if, if you feel it subjectively, then that's what it is for you. The purpose isn't like that, right? Mm. If you say, I think this is the purpose of life, I can say, well, here's why you're wrong. Yeah, it's not because because you don't get to decide. You don't create your purpose. You don't you and and it's certainly not merely subjective, right? You 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 can have a perception of it, but your perception better map what it really is. So, what is the purpose so of I, life then? Um, God. Okay, that's the short answer, right? Um, the, a slightly more helpful answer would be the purpose of life is for us to live in communion with God. And is is there a conception of God? Is it a particular conception of God or just if I we was have, a Hindu and I thought... Do you want to do some metaphysics right now? We can, <laughs> I mean, we can do some metaphysics. Um, that, that's a, you're asking the great question. This is, this, is, this is where the conversation should go if we, had, if we had a lot more time. I don't know how much time you have, but... We, we, um, can, we can keep uh, going. Yeah, obviously, um, it, 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 it's too glib for me to say the purpose of life is communion with God, but that, that's the best short answer I can give. And then we have yeah. to ask okay, well, how do we conceive God? And um, I'm, I'm actually not trying to give an answer that's specifically Christian. So I think that Plato and Aristotle would agree that that's the purpose of life, yeah. living communion with God. They have, they, they have um, what might seem, at least Aristotle, uh, a, a tragic sense that maybe that's not possible, but we have to try as much as we can. Um, 
Plato seems to be maybe more open to the possibility of it, but he, he leaves philosophy aside and, and um, has recourse to myth when he's describing what, what um, an afterlife might look like. But that's, that's what the idea of heaven is. The idea of heaven is that we are, we, we are finally in communion with the God that we've been seeking in this life. Okay. Um, so the, the, the contemporary understanding of heaven is not it. Well, I don't know right. what you mean by the, con- I, the contemporary. I, I, I'm thinking more so the idea that, oh, heaven is a place where you are, um, <clears throat> uh, you're, you're in the spiritual, you're in the spiritual realm, kind of walking around, always smiling and hanging out with angels and, um, right. and then, well, you know, I mean, there's wings. something our, our images of heaven are always going to be inadequate. So there's, there's something, um, understandable in thinking that, okay, we are smiling because we're happy, we're fulfilled. Mm-hmm. We're with angels because we're, we're in communion with, to be in communion with God is going to be to be in communion with everybody else who's in communion with God. Mm. Um, historically, by the way, hell and heaven have always been treated as uh, uh, loneliness versus community. Even in Plato, when Plato gives myths of what happens to vicious souls in the afterlife, they, because they're vicious, they're incapable of friendship. So they experience uh, enmity and, and uh, strife and loneliness. Whereas virtuous souls are capable of friendship. And so they are together as friends of the forms, conversing about them and sharing in them, uh, forming community. So right. even our, our silly views of heaven, you know, that it's in the clouds and we're smiling and there's harp music, that that's supposed to be really beautiful. It is really beautiful. Um, and, and all of that, th- those, are, those are, you know, childish but authentic imaginations. What would it, like, what would it be like for our, the best part of us, the, the, most, the most authentically human part of us, mm-hmm. to be finally fulfilled in a way that it's no longer seeking, but it finally has it? So is it, is it a state that you were in? Like, um, uh, it's a state, but it, it's not a state if by state you mean something that is opposed to um, ongoing activity. Okay. So it, it, is, it is a state of sustained activity. Is, is our conversation a state? We're, we've been in the state of conversation now for mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, well more than an hour. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a state. But okay. it's a state of continuous activity where we're we're reflecting together on on something. Um, so so some of the other common images of heaven are that it is our conversation with God, where we finally we we get to finally be um, directly in conversation with God. Um, and another image um, is that it is a vision of God. Right. So now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. God is obscure, he's mysterious, but something about heaven will finally we will finally get to gaze upon the um you know the, the one who loved us and made us and that we've been seeking all of our lives and 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 finally see it. So so being in a state of contemplation is another yeah. way of describing heaven. Uh, where contemplation isn't um, some academic exercise, and it's not um, daydreaming. It, 
it is focusing all of our attention on the most important, most beautiful, most true thing that there possibly could be. Hmm. So is, so is our practice of meditation on, um, while we're still alive, I, a practice towards that sort of contemplation. Okay. Yeah. And practice is the, is the right word in, in, in its, in its multiple senses, right? Hmm. To, to pray is to have a conversation with God, um, we typically think of that in terms of our speech, but it also involves our listening. We, we want to be able to hear God in prayer and, and, and being silent, as you mentioned um, earlier in the conversation, is, is an important part of that. Being, being still so that we can receive um, the other side of the conversation that God might be communicating to us. Uh, but part of that might simply be becoming more aware of, of how we stand in relation to God, which we do by speaking to him and letting him know you know, what we're thankful for or what our trials are or what, what our anxieties are. Um, and and um, fr- friendship with God and contemplation with God can both be understood in terms of the, the idea of a conversation, which is what we practice when we pray. So, okay. so does, it, does, does it matter what, how you conceive God? So say I conceive, say I'm a Hindu and I, um, you know, I, my conception of God is, it, I mean, at least the way it was described to me once by a Hindu um, doctor on my on on my journey on my uh, flight to LA was, um, he said, the way I conceive God is, he is like the ultimate light, um, that is giving life to all things, and our end is to find our way back, our journey, our way back to this light. And if you don't do well, then obviously you don't make it. You can get reincarnated as something else, and then you can try. But our ultimate end is to be. He used the he used a word that was very similar to a Platonic um, view of yeah. God, and um, and so I mean, does it matter that he, his conception of God is that, and say your conception of God is presumably is um, uh, is existence itself or the one whose existence is identical? Um, based on what you said, I don't know if we're. Um, talking about different gods. If, if we're uh, talking about something different or not. Right? Mm. So as you, as you pointed out, what he's describing sounds a lot like Plato's description um, of, of uh, the idea of the good in the Republic, um, which, which when, when you read that and, and see what he's saying about the good as the source of all and the source of all intelligibility and the source of all goodness, he's talking about God. Mm. Um, and, and that's why Platonic thought was something that was seen to be so rich for um, Christian theologians who were, who were trying to articulate um, conceptions of the divine. Is it adequate? Is it enough? Mm-hmm. I, I, it, it might be enough to start a process of prayer. Is it enough um, to, to, um, to lead you to where it's describing it wants to be led? A Christian has to say no. There's a, if, if, again, if Christ is the one true path, then then we, we need we need to add something to that, but not we don't need we need we don't need to undermine it. Um, we might ask, um, how literally are you taking light, right? Because because it might be that he's actually thinking of a physical light, in which case, and maybe maybe he's he's inhibited by um, a, 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 an imagination that's stuck in materialism. Okay. like Augustine was in the Confessions. Um, so in, in Augustine's conversion, it was actually important for him 
first to gain a new conception of God through philosophy mm. before he could appreciate what Christians were saying about what Christians were saying seemed absurd because he was stuck in a materialistic conception of God reading Plato, of course, is what helped him overcome a materialistic conception of God so that he could, he could imagine a God that transcended the physical world. Mm. Then going back to scripture, he could see, he could appreciate claims in scripture. He could appreciate the church's teachings on certain doctrines um, in a new light based on the philosophical correction of, of his conception of God. So, it, so it, I think, it, I, yeah. yeah it, in terms of um, the, th the three, uh, um, Abrahamic religions, we have Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam. Uh, at least the at least their at least some of their most prominent philosophers, you know, seem to all agree on the conception of God to an extent, right? Maimonides, obviously Aquinas, sure. and then Avicenna, yep. Averroes. But at the same time, it's 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 very common, I would say, um, talking with, excuse me, talking with people from those religions now and then if you were to ask them to you worship the same god more often than not it's a no right now is that is that uh, is that a fair answer is that a is that a correct answer or do you think that um there's a there's a misconception know. um you're asking very good questions you and and i think uh, um i would characterize a lot of the questions that you're asking as pastoral Okay. You're you're concerned, and and this this is this is certainly not criticism. Um, I'm, I'm, in fact, it's meant as an appreciation, right? Um, if anything, maybe what I'm saying has stayed way too theoretical and abstract. And you're asking questions about like, okay, well, what would you say to someone who was, you know, in front of you? And mm. um, and and it might be that um, with with the pastoral concern. Um, I, I can't answer the question in the abstract. Um, I'd have to get to know the person mm. and I'd have to know more about, you know, how much we do and don't share. I, I have argued in some circumstances that the Christian God is the same as the Muslim God. Mm. Um, I can do that in a metaphysics class. Yeah. Um, in other circumstances, um, for pastoral reasons, right? I um, have emphasized the difference between the Muslim conception of God and the Christian conception of God. And it's kind of a judgment call in those circumstances whether I should say they, they are, they are the, the Muslim is trying to worship the same God as the Christian, but is inhibited by a wrong conception. Okay. And so I want to correct that conception so that the Muslim can be successful in um, articulating the, the same God that Christians talk about. Okay. Or whether um, I say, well, because that conception is so different, mm -hmm. if you insist on using that conception, I'm going to have to say that you ha you're talking about a different God than the one I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Is So how would you... I, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go, go, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I, in, in the circumstances in which I find myself as a philosophy teacher, I am more inclined to emphasize um, that, that the, the, the former yeah. strategy. Yeah. Um, 
and part of that is, I mean, I actually, I really don't know a lot about contemporary Muslim uh, practice, belief, or theology. Um, my my contact with Islam is uh, primarily through reading um, medieval Islamic philosophers who influenced Western philosophers, mm. and so my, you know, the strategy that I described is essentially the strategy that Aquinas used when he's talking about Avicenna or Averroes. They're really helpful guys in interpreting Aristotle on metaphysics, and Aristotle also believes in the same God as the Christian. But I know in certain circumstances, in certain contexts, that would sound crazy too. But I believe that. I just think that Aristotle didn't have Christian faith, and so he didn't know certain things about that God that Christians Mm -hmm. know. But he did figure out a lot about God that Christians also know. Okay. So how would you, how would you, you know, let's, let's, let's do a bit of metaphysics. How would you, what is your conception of God or this conception of God that you're working with that allows you to say, okay, these, uh, these, uh, you know, Islam, Islamic understanding of God to an extent, let's say ancient uh, medieval Islamic understanding of God, Christianity and Judaism, they all are functioning with the same understanding. Like, what is that? This, this is great. And this is a great example, by the way, just as an aside of how you can't do ecumenism without metaphysics. Mm. Mm. Um, you, you can't, you can't, be, because metaphysics is the language that allows what would otherwise be different discourses to talk to each other. That's um, a great point. Um, but so you, but you asked, what is my, what is my conception of God or, or what, what, how am I, how am I metaphysically understanding God to be able to say that those things? And maybe, I don't know, are your listeners going to be appalled that I said that Aristotle believes in the same God as Christian? Uh, I'm sure some would be, I'm sure others would that. definitely not be. <laughs> I hope I get some, I hope I get some mail about that one. Um, God is the origin of everything. Mm. He's uncreated. Uh, he's good. Um, he's goodness itself. Um, he, um, is pure activity or pure actuality. He's not, he's not something doing something, but he is the doing of it. And he's not even different from his nature. So God is, this is the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, all of those things are things that, um, have traditionally been found in Plato and Aristotle. I could, say, I mean, I could name some more metaphysical theses, but I think I, I put enough on the table there to explain why I would say um, that, that, that um, these different traditions can can all be talking about the same thing. Um, uh, traditionally, Plato and Aristotle have been seen to describe a god in those terms. Um, he's one. There's only one of them. Um, he's outside of time. Um, he's unchanging. Um, he's immaterial, transcends the physical world. Mm. Um, he's intelligent and alive. So Plato and Aristotle both say all of that about God. Um, uh, Christians and Muslims think that that God has um, historically revealed himself in particular ways through particular events that Plato and Aristotle wouldn't have had any access to. Um, and so Christians and Muslims also say other things about God, right? But the, even take the, you know, the, the essential claim of Christianity is the incarnation, right? That mm. God became man. 
But that claim, which you can only know by Christian faith, only Christians believe that, right? If you, if you believe that God became man, that, that, that is constitutive of Christian faith right there. Um, if, if you can only believe that, if you at least logically prior believe that there is a God, so, so uh, it shouldn't be controversial to, to claim that there can be non-Christians who believe in God. They just deny that God did what Christians say God did in the person of Christ. You, um, that, that, that's, how I would, that's how I would parse that. So, so that's a very interesting point. So with the, let's say, understanding God as pure actuality and you know, uh, the, uh, I don't know what the Latin, ipsum essay, substance, substance, sure. what sure. is it? Um, you have that understanding of God, which I would think historically that's what Christians have held to. But you have more contemporary understandings, understanding of God within Christianity that seem very different from the classical conception of God, right. um, where it's God is a being among other beings. God is like, you know, Zeus, except a hundred times stronger and bigger and more powerful. Right now, epistemological. Maybe it's not even epistemology question. Um, are if you have these two Christians, let's just say, okay, hypothetically, um, one has the classical conception of God and one does not. Right. Are they now and then, and they both claim to be worshiping God? Right. Are they worshiping different gods? Um, that's a great question. Um, and sort of like my previous aside, this shows why you can't do theology without metaphysics either. <laughs> so you, we, I before said you can't do it. Yeah. But now we can't even do, um, have, have a dispute among Christians within their own denomination about, about theology without, without resorting to metaphysics. So there I would say, um, and again, you know, you have, you have to uh, be attentive to the particulars and and maybe get to know exactly what this person is thinking there i think there are there are metaphysical mistakes that are so wrong that they they actually could make it the case that someone who thinks they're a christian is not mm. um so if augustine i forget what what book in the confessions it's in but if he thought when he was still a materialist that the incarnation meant that a material God physically fused itself with um, human nature yeah. and that that's what Christians were worshiping. And he started worshiping that even if by all outward trappings, he looked like a Christian because he was going to church and saying all the creeds, there would be something defective in him that was really not understanding what he was supposed to be worshiping. Mm. Um, I mean, the poor guy is still a materialist. So he's going to have a wrong understanding of heaven. He's going to have a wrong understanding of um, what it even means for the soul to survive death. He's, he's, um, he's, going, to, he's going to have a lot wrong. Um, now, in actual, in actual practice, maybe that would never even come up because he's still talking. He's still repeating right. the same phrases and claims that, that other Christians are making. So it might it might take a very specific kind of philosophical conversation for that even to come out that that even though he's saying the same words, um, he has a different conception in his mind of what he's doing, which means that 
that his act of worship is seemingly different. But I also, I don't know exactly where that line is, mm-hmm. where the, the conception is so wrong that we have, we would have to say that. And um, I think in general, we would want to say that um, even the best um, theologian who's, who has the most sophisticated metaphysics is going to be inadequate in some way. It's just doing, we're all doing our best. And so if you meet someone who you think has a deficient metaphysics, but is still a member of your worship community, yeah. right? You, you sort of want to give the benefit of the doubt and hope that further conversation can clarify things and, and lead to um, uh, further improvement. I mean, I, I know, I know plenty of Christians who, who really don't, um, agree with the doctrine of divine simplicity or the doctrine of divine immutability. Mm-hmm. To me, those, those are necessary um, for philosophical reasons, but also mm-hmm. I see them in scripture. Um, so I sort of think it's that if you don't see that, there's something you're missing about the divine nature. But on the other hand, I know how difficult it can be for people who, um, you know, um, have a different set of experiences and a different history uh, studying theology than I have. Uh, those are hard. Those are hard doctrines mm-hmm. to understand. Um, you don't. You don't have to. You don't have to have a, a course in Aristotle's metaphysics under your belt in order to be a converted Christian. And maybe maybe it would actually harm most people mm. that um, study too much metaphysics before um, being confirmed as a Christian. Um, so what, what is, what is required of salvation is actually the childlike faith, right? That doesn't try to understand too much, but, but knows that it's true. Um, and so I guess another, another thing that I would want to take into account, if I came across a Christian who I thought had a a deeply wrong metaphysical understanding of God, I would, Mm -hmm. I would want to take stock of how, how much is this person responsible for having a proper metaphysical conception of God. If it, if it, if it was a theologian who is claiming to be engaging with classical philosophy, then I would, I would feel a strong uh, sense of responsibility to argue this stuff out and so we could learn from each other. But if it was just someone who otherwise doesn't ever think about philosophy and has some wacky metaphysical ideas, but is otherwise like on the right track, maybe it's not as important. Okay, so let's 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 push this a little bit further. Um, so you have in three twenty five, Arius who is um, declared a heretic for his understanding right. of right. Um, for his mis for not holding to the right doctrine. Now, at least from my reading of Arius and reading literature about that time, it seems that he had his conception of God was identical with the rest of the other guys. It's just. It seems I could be wrong. So if if right, you think I'm wrong, right. you can tell me. But it it seems from my reading that his understanding of God was wasn't any different. But his understanding of you know Jesus and uh, of the incarnation the, was different. the incarnation was wrong. Yeah, <clears throat> but we declared him a heretic. I mean, we as right. in like the the church declared him a heretic. Now, yeah. it seems that retrospectively, Arius <laughs> Arius seems to be a better hold to more orthodox view understanding of God than certain understanding of God in our contemporary culture. 
I think that's right. I mean, I, I'm, this isn't, this isn't an area of my specialty, but I know how important um, defining Christian faith in almost in contrast to areas was um, historically. And even uh, reviewing that history was a big part of um, John Henry Newman's conversion to Catholicism. Mm. Um, Arius, Arius's heresy wasn't a metaphysical mistake. It was, it was a mistake about the incarnation. And that's why it was important to condemn. <clears throat> um, and maybe this is a good reminder that getting the metaphysics right isn't enough. Mm. Um, it, it's much more important to believe that God became man than to have a, a sophisticated um, understanding of uh, the divine nature uh, from classical philosophy. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so this is, this is a good reminder about how the definition of heresy is really important for um, the um, ongoing maintenance of uh, a faith community. Hmm. And part of what we believe gets articulated as in contrast to things that have been ruled out that are not to be believed. Um, a, a good way to learn about the Christian doctrine of, in, of the incarnation is to study all the different heresies right. of, of people creatively getting it wrong. Um, and it's not, it's not as if there, there was a clear understanding and then the false understandings kind of cropped up. But there, there was a, a vague understanding that got clarified by identifying certain articulations as false. Mm, mm. Um, so a first century Christian wouldn't recognize some of the things that are said about the incarnation in a, you know, a book of 19th century theology. Right. Um, that doesn't mean the book of 19th century theology is wrong. It just means that the book of 19th century theology is, is benefiting from um, a, a long period of reflection and refinement of ideas that were, um, not even ready to be fully articulated in the first mm. century. Is so you, you and I are both talking. Uh, we, you and I are both assuming that we can talk and understand God, and obviously um, we're assuming that God exists. Um, yes. But as human beings, is our disposition naturally to think that God exists? Or is our disposition to be more skeptical of these um, supernatural conversations, supernatural things? I don't. I don't know. If um, I mean, I I do think it's human nature to be open to truth and to wonder about truth. I think a lot depends on how one is introduced to the concept of God the very first time. Um, that, because there is certainly a, a, a disposition in in human beings to be um, to be skeptical, to be skeptical, especially of what can't be seen, mm -hmm. um, but also to not necessarily trust things that are um, presented to you um, on authority. On the other hand, it's also natural to recognize that one can't go through life avoiding trusting other people, trusting testimony, trusting authority. Um, and I do think there's something in us that wants that, that that not just wants to believe, but recognizes that um, the the physical world bears witness to something that transcends it. That that it's it's not enough. It's not self-sufficient. It doesn't explain itself. 
um, it is it is important that it's a it's a, a part of um, the Christian tradition that the existence of God is not self-evident, but is in a sense something obvious that we should we we are responsible for being aware of. So it's not like trivially true or defined into the nature of God that he exists so that everybody automatically believes it. But it is something that, um, you know, uh, uh, Augustine often quotes the beginning of Romans. Um, it, that, that, um, it, you know, it, it, the, the, the things of this world testify to um, something beyond. Mm. Um, uh, and so I, I, think, I think both tendencies are natural, okay. both to believe in God, but also to, for there to be stumbling blocks to believing in God. And, and I'm assuming you would think that there are reasons, there are good reasons for believing in God and, as opposed to not believing in God. Oh, yeah, uh, both philosophically and personally. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are philosophical arguments that um, prove the existence of something and then and then the more we uh, reflect on what that something must be like that we prove the existence of it the more it sounds like what what people traditionally mean by the word god mm. but i also think <clears throat> even before then before getting to philosophical arguments um, i mean it's not hard to teach children to believe in god mm. um I don't, how old are your children i have not no ch no you don't have children yeah sorry um, I, I shouldn't have assumed that. You mentioned your wife before, and I started imagining no. you as a, as a family man. No, we uh, um, we I did have a we we had a son, and he passed away. So now we I don't. I'm so sorry. I, I I feel terrible that I. No, don't don't feel don't feel terrible. Back, but I'm very sorry. Um, what was your son's name? Gazingram. So Gazingram dialogue is is um is based on my son. So the podcast I, and the bag I, I'm very happy to know that, and I will I will pray for Gizingram. Thank you. Morning. I appreciate that a lot, um, and my wife will appreciate that. Um, children, children have a natural wonder, mm. and children want to believe in um, invisible things, in um, powerful and amazing things. Um, in uh, loving parental authority, it, all of those things, they're, they're disposed. It, now, it's, it's possible for children, we know, to be raised in circumstances where it becomes harder to believe those things or where they're taught not to believe those things. Um, but, um, but long, long before philosophy even becomes a possibility, belief in God becomes a possibility. So I'm, I'm, mm. I'm exhibiting a lot of confidence in what philosophy can tell us about God's nature, but I don't want to make it seem as if I think philosophy is necessary um, for belief in God in general and certainly not for, for Christian yeah. faith. Is, um, it, it, if, assuming that evolution is true and that you know, our brains evolved over millennia, uh, yeah. how do we ever... Can we trust our brain to, can we trust our brain and ourselves to know truth, to ascertain to what is true, what is true, metaphysically true? Yeah. Um, 
I think it's interesting that you phrase that in terms of can we trust our brains. <clears throat> um, I think we're more than our, our, our cognitive faculties are more than our brains. Um, actually, I do think our brains can be trusted to deliver a lot of a lot of things, but um, truth as an object of the intellect, I believe, um, means that our intellect can't be identified with a physical organ. Mm. Um, and so that's why I would make the distinction. I, I would want. I would rather ask: Can we trust our intellect? We have an intellect. Okay. Have an intellect that tries to know, that sometimes thinks it knows. So the question is, can can it ever know anything? Well, it seems to me the very asking of the question implies that we know something. I mean, mm -hmm. even even if it's something as as um, small and and hard to to um, uh, move off from as Descartes, I think therefore I am. But I mean, you know, you know that you exist. You you you're self aware of yourself as a as a truth seeking being. Um, that observation, by the way, is not original with, with Descartes. Augustine has a version of that as well. That um, As we look at the external world, we can be skeptical of it in a sense, but that only makes us more certain of our sort of interior life and, and that, 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 that um, there, there is a world that um, even in us that seems to transcend the physical world. Mm. Um, so, I, I mean... Um, I think outside of philosophy class, more people ask about specific truths and whether you can know them. Um, philosophy class sometimes teaches us to ask the more general question, can we know anything at all? But um, I think most of us are aware that um, it, it doesn't hold together, it doesn't make sense to, to, to hold everything in doubt or to say that there's no such thing as truth. What we, what we usually mean when we argue about that is, well, I, I think truth is only limited to this domain, or I think um, mm. I can only know truths that maybe aren't the ones that I really want to know, but they're the ones that are more immediate, something like that. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is one of the ways in which we bear the image of God. Um, God is truth, and God is also intelligent, and the truth that he knows is himself, um, and all of creation uh, reflects that in some way or other, but he, he made us um, as having a share in um, uh, being able to grasp um, being able to grasp uh, truth and reason with a, with a power that is that is ours. You couldn't yeah. even formulate the question. With of that power, the fact that the fact that you seek it is mm -hmm. is evidence of, of rationality, and the evidence of rationality is evidence of of the object of rationality. That there's something there that you're seeking. You yeah. don't know if you found it yet, but right. um, it doesn't make sense to for, to even be bothered about the question if you don't think that there's truth. Mm. You want yeah. a true answer to that question. It, in that sense, it's kind of self-refuting. I don't think I've ever heard it from that. I don't think I've ever heard it put that way, that the asking of the question is, is an, uh, the asking of the question, and I guess the asking of the question is self-defeating if you think that there is no truth. Mm. Jo man, Josh, this has been a fantastic conversation, but before 
uh, we end this conversation. Where can the listeners find you online? Do you have a website? Sure. Um, I don't have a personal website. I have a, I have some of my writing is up on academia. Um, and if you, if you Google me, you can find, um, you can find the academia site. You can also find, um, I, I teach at Mount St. Mary's university. Um, and I, I think faculty emails are posted, um, online, uh, there. So you can find my email there and you can also, um, connect to me on Twitter at Josh Hope Shield. It's all run together. J O S H H O C H S C H I L D. I know that's a mouthful, but, um, uh, that's also an easy way to find me. And, and, um, yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, for sure. Do you also, do you, uh, are you writing a book that in, is there a book in the works? Well, um, that you're allowed to talk I about. A, I have a couple of things that I, um, I, I want to be working on and I've worked on some in fits and starts. So I have, I have, um, a, a, a book project on Aristotle's metaphysics that um, I started a number of years ago and then I, I put aside and then I worked on it again and put aside and um, it, it, I hope that I can get back to that in the near future. Um, I also have a plan to edit some unpublished manuscripts by um, two 20th century philosophers, uh, Mortimer Adler yeah. and Yves Simone each wrote uh, books that they plan to publish or parts of books that they plan to publish on um, analogy in Aristotle and Aquinas. Hmm. And um, I would like to um, prepare those for a wider audience and, and finally see them published. And there's no, um, and there's no set have, deadline? I'm sorry? There's no set deadline for that? There's no set deadline okay. for that. that. Um, and I also, I am playing with some ideas of, of um, uh, a book about um political and social thought. Mm. Okay. Well, Josh, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This, this has been a great conversation. I've, uh, I've enjoyed the, the questions and um, uh, an honor to be asked. Thanks.